Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... So yes, welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video cast as we have today. Uh, I am excited about the topic that we're, because as most of you have listened to my show in the past, know that I'm, a, I'm very much an economist deep down inside of me. And uh, last year in March, I did an interview on March 12th with my guest, Dr. Mark Thornton, that was called the Compassionate Capitalist Economic Theory that Predicts the the economic theory that predicts the the capital markets, that predicts the collapse of the capital markets. Anyway, it's the you can see it in the show notes. I made a bitly for it, so you can go back and and listen to it because we're going to build upon that. And it was uh, it's bit.ly cc radio dash skyscraper, and the ccr is capitalized. During that particular podcast, uh, Dr. Mark Thornton. Dr. Thornton, Mark, here with me today. He, he and I talked about his book that, and the work that he does at the Mises Institute that's over in Auburn. It's the Austria, it, it sort of builds upon and, and, and uh, is all based around the Austrian business cycle theory. And his book is called The Skyscraper Curse, How Austrian Economists Predicted Every Major Economic Crisis of the Last Century and in specifically within the 2009 recession prediction uh, was part of a big, a big piece of what that book had to do with. And we discussed uh, the current influences at the time of, of where we thought the market was gonna go in, 20, in 2020. We talked about the rise of ICOs and cryptocurrency, the JOBS Act and the impact that had on economic development for small businesses, and then also the redevelopment in our inner cities and our rural areas with the Opportunity Zone Fund. And so we went through that and, 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 and what was gonna happen in 2020 as a result of this mile high skyscraper being built over in the Middle East. And so it was really interesting when the market started to fluctuate and collapse a, couple, a month or so ago, I was like, wait, I, we talked about this. I need to get Dr. Thornton back on my show and talk about what's going on right now with the pandemic and then uh, what we've seen just recently with the riots and the destruction in a lot of our cities in the retail and so i reached out to him i said please come back on my show and let's have a conversation about that what happened since 2019 what the the um, impact is what's going on right now and what are some ideas and things that we can do that will help us come out of this and rebuild our economy. So with that, I want to say, yes, welcome back, Mark. It's great to have you back on the show. Karen, it's great to be back on your show for sure. Uh, so it's been a long time and uh, a lot of things have happened. Um, a lot of crazy things have happened. Uh, I certainly didn't predict this virus uh, unless it turns out to be nothing more than a bad, bad flu season. Uh, we all know that comes around every year. Um, but I think the the economy uh, was already starting to show signs uh, that it was in pretty bad shape fundamentally, despite the fact that we had a record high sky um, 
stock market. And despite the fact that we had a historic low in the unemployment rate, if you look behind the scenes and you look at the fundamentals um, and you break the economy down, you see a lot of problems um, out there. Uh, for example, one of the things that stuck out to me was uh, the number of job openings. Uh, that statistic uh, hit an all-time record high in the first week of December 2019, and it started headed down. Um, and it, it uh, collapsed by a number greater than a million job openings uh, before the virus hit. And then, of course, it collapsed entirely as a result. And, and so that was a leading indicator to me that the economy was already in trouble. And then when you look at the labor market, you see uh, the fact that so many uh, recent college graduates couldn't find a job. 41% uh, could not find a job. And about a third of all college graduates uh, historically uh, were underemployed in the sense that the job that they had didn't require a college education. Um, and we see, uh, of course, government uh, with uh, annual deficits of over a trillion dollars, exceeding $20 trillion in the national debt. Um, you know, so a lot of crazy things were happening, a lot of uh, financial manipulation, uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, in recent years, which is a sign of actually of, of trouble. Uh, you know, when companies are trying to make money by mergers and acquisitions, by stock buybacks and, and things of that nature, uh, they're resorting to financial manipulation rather than production and innovation uh, to make money. And so all in all, uh, I saw a fundamentally uh, weak economy. Uh, if you look at the consumer, 60% uh, of all consumers had less than $1,000 in savings going into this crisis. Uh, half of them had absolutely no uh, savings. And of course, most Americans have a huge amount of debt, credit card debt, mortgage debt, um, student loan debt. Uh, you know, the um, amount of student loans ballooned uh, to $1.6 trillion in student oh. debt. So the, the numbers are, uh, are just um, astounding uh, to me. And it just showed me that other than the financial manipulation by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury uh, putting up with a trillion dollar plus deficits was what was really keeping the American economy going. And that's not really a good way to run an economy. Yeah. So let's, you know, I always hear when I would have conversations with people about, you know, the state of affairs in the U.S. economically, they always would point to the stock market being so high. So explain to our listeners why the stock market is not an indicator of the health of the economy. Well, or, the real, or in what way is it an indicator? Well, the, the problem with the modern stock market is um, that, of course, it, everybody knows this. It's a function of the interest rate in the economy. How much do we discount the future um, in, the, in terms of the value of these stocks? So under natural conditions with interest rates determined in the marketplace between savers and borrowers, uh, you wouldn't see the type of distortions that can occur uh, when you have the Federal Reserve setting interest rates in the economy. And um, so that when they push 
interest rates lower, uh, the value of capital goods, the value of stocks, the value of bonds, the value of land, the uh, value of real estate all rise in concert with those lower interest rates. And if they're artificially lowered by the central bank, the Federal Reserve, that's when the real problem uh, really starts. That's what happened in, uh, for example, the 1920s when the stock market made a huge run up and then crashed. That's what happened in the 1960s uh, when we had very low interest rates. Uh, the economy was great for 10 years, uh, like the 20s and like this past decade. And, uh, and then, you know, eventually that can't go on. And uh, it's, like a, it's like a drug addict or something like that, where you can take the drugs and feel great for a long period of time, and then the body just shuts down. Well, that's what happens in a similar way with the stock market. So we saw in the, you know, the 20s, the 60s, um, this past decade, uh, a long run-up uh, in the stock market, but it was being juiced by these artificially low rates uh, that were engineered at the Federal Reserve. I mean, basically, I mean, uh, the Fed pushed down interest rates close to zero for a decade. Mm. Um, you know, that's just obviously uh, not natural. It's never happened before in history. Um, and so you see, uh, before this crash, um, what we see in the economy was that uh, people were making loans at negative interest rates. Uh, I have a friend who, who bought a farm in Denmark, um, and his loan had a negative interest rate on it. And How so, be? yeah, it's, it's crazy. And, but we have negative interest rates on government bonds. And just recently we had negative oil prices. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, something is wrong. Everybody knows something wrong when the price of oil in the futures market is, uh, you know, $20 to the negative. And you, you only get strange things like that um, under these unusual conditions uh, because a lot of these goods and loans and money uh, have to be stored someplace. So the oil has to be stored someplace and there was no place to put it. That's why you got the negative interest rates. Uh, in terms of interest rates on deposit, how do they go negative? Well, you know, there's so much money floating around and, and people have to put the money someplace. They can't, you know, if you've got a billion dollars in cash as a corporation or as a wealthy billionaire, you can't put that under your mattress. You've got to have uh, purchased government bonds or uh, CDs or, or put it on deposit with a bank. Uh, and if there's that much money flowing in, uh, that's when they can get away with uh, these negative interest rates. So it's unusual conditions uh, brought about by uh, central banks around the world. It's not just the Fed, it's the European Central Bank, it's the Bank of Japan. And of course, a lot of the smaller central banks have to sort of go along with it um, in order to, uh, you know, to uh, maintain stability at a macroeconomic level. Uh, Switzerland, for example, trying to protect its currency from rising too much, um, has purchased uh, all sorts of things to try to keep that Swiss franc from exploding upwards in value. And um, so the other central banks are basically forced to go along with, with what the large central banks have been doing, uh, which is uh, their thought that 
somehow printing up money on a massive scale is somehow good for an economy where historically economists always knew that inflation uh, or increasing the money supply is not really a great thing for an economy. Yeah, so with, um, for, so what would it have taken? I mean, what, a lot of people, and for it will be something debated for a long time is, you know, it was just the, the pandemic caused the, the, this economic crisis that we're in. So, uh, and, it, and, you know, there's argument there. I'm sure that you have an opinion on that. But so within that context of, of the impact of the pandemic on this, what would it, you know, when we had the, the crisis of 2009, it was a domino effect because of a collapse of a bank, but that was triggered in part because of um, the way the mortgages and the and these reverse mortgages and all these different things that were these had been done. So it was like this a whole bunch of factors that came in, and then it just sort of uh, you know was this domino effect and snowballed on that. And and you know you can kind of point back to something that sort of started it. But you know, so where is is the would there have been something else? If we didn't have this pandemic, would it would something else have have you know popped the bubble of this artificial perception of a good economy in 2020? Yeah, the the virus is a trigger. A, a virus is a trigger to popping the bubble that was already there. Eventually, something would come along and pop that bubble. Um, but the virus uh, came first. Uh, it triggered the the crisis. It triggered the meltdown in the stock market. And it's going to make it worse. Of course, the lockdown is going to make the economic crisis worse. It's going to make it deeper. It's going to make it more drawn out uh, as a result because, you know, in a kind of an unnatural way, uh, the lockdown basically put millions and millions of people out of work um, and shut down many, many companies. It's going to be terrible for small business. Um, you know, the, uh, the whole idea that, um, you know, the government is keeping their liquor stores open, but, uh, is forcing churches to close, forcing small businesses to close. Um, that's going to make things, uh, much, much worse. And, uh, and we're seeing that the fundamentals really are not good as well. So, uh, I think the lockdown uh, was a mistake. I think that they needed to tell uh, the American people and people around the world what the situation was, what science uh, says to do, um, how the virus is transmitted, and what we can do to mitigate it. Um, you know, for example, the overwhelming number of people dying from the virus are retired senior citizens. And so retired senior citizens uh, should have been informed to isolate themselves indefinitely uh, to try to get healthier, try to sleep well, eat well, exercise, to get stronger, uh, to avoid the worst consequences uh, of this virus. Uh, but if the virus wasn't here, uh, there are things that can be done uh, to solve an economic crisis. It's unfortunate that the government is really doing all the wrong things. They're propping up businesses. Uh, they're subsidizing unemployment with uh, rosier uh, unemployment benefit checks. Um, 
you know, so what we need to do, and this has been proven in the past, is uh, to let the economy uh, do its thing, to let entrepreneurs do their thing, and um, an economy can quickly recover um, as a result. So it, you can contrast uh, the crises and the panics, uh, for example, of the second half of the 19th century. They were bad, but they were over with very quickly because the government couldn't um, respond. It didn't have the tools uh, that would have uh, mucked up the economy. Uh, the panic of uh, 1914, the same thing. The crisis of 1920, uh, President Harding basically balanced the budget, had the central bank raise interest rates, which you think would be crazy uh, today, but the crisis was over very quickly as a result. Uh, so we don't want to prop up prices. We don't want to prop up wages. We don't want to prop up com uh, companies because entrepreneurs in the marketplace are really the best way of addressing an economic crisis. You have to you know, let the pieces of the economy fall initially um, and then let entrepreneurs pick up the pieces, uh, reorient um, the way resources are allocated to what goods and so forth. And so actually it's lower prices in the economy, lower wages in the economy and higher interest rates which starts the healing process in the economy. What the government is doing today is propping up prices, propping up wages, uh, subsidizing unemployment, uh, and bringing interest rates right back down to zero. Uh, again, throwing the saver, the individual saver, under the bus, uh, so to speak. And so I think it's, it's very unfortunate that we're trying to address this crisis like the Japanese uh, did to their 1989 stock market crash. Uh, they've been low interest rates, negative interest rates, subsidies left, right for 30 years, and their economy is still pretty much hamstrung. Uh, it was once the you know wonder of the world, the right. Japanese economy. We were Americans were afraid that the Japanese were going to take over the world uh, through their business model, and that absolutely collapsed under the influence of Keynesian economics. Um, and so there are ways that, mm -hmm. uh, that all this can be solved. Uh, it's just unfortunate that uh, we're not doing it the correct way. So, we, so we, earlier you mentioned about how the, the deficit, right? So, and it's, it's, it was big before because of us, or at least our government had the, the, the uh, oversight had predicted that it was going to just really, it was already bad. It was going to get even worse with the tax cut. We didn't have that trickle down effect of, of people, you know, businesses wage, uh, raising wages for their workers. Instead, they did buybacks of the big corporations that bought back the stock, all those kind of things. And now with this, um, the unemployment assistance and these care acts, the, there's no taxes, fewer taxes to, be collected and you have more money being spent by the government, how do we get to a balanced budget? How do we get the deficit under control? Well, it's, it's just been the wild west uh, in Washington, DC in terms of spending money. It seems like there's- Talk about printing money. It's like we're printing money. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're printing money, that's right. Uh, the government runs a deficit, it borrows the money and then 
the Federal Reserve buys those government bonds and prints up money electronically to pay for them. So they're, they're monetizing the debt, which is a really bad thing. Uh, there's so much things to be cut. Uh, every department um, out there uh, can be uh, can have their budget cut and uh, reoriented um, so that uh, you know we have like 17 spy agencies and we've got like troops in 150 different countries and we've got 89 different welfare programs and you know the list goes on and on and every belt has to be uh, tightened um, simultaneously we've got to do things like f obviously fix the entitlement programs and i think that, that if we were to do all of that uh, and set in place uh, you know plans to cut all these budgets uh, to reduce the amount of assets that the federal government controls uh, i think we can easily balance the budget and indeed we can um, eliminate the national debt. I know that sounds very far-fetched, but one recent estimate says that the federal government alone has over $200 trillion worth of assets in terms of buildings, uh, in terms of land, in terms of mineral rights. Uh, the list goes on and on, as you can well imagine. A colleague of mine estimated that the government has 50,000 buildings that are not in use right now. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are in terrible shape, obviously. Uh, but, you know, just the idea uh, that they could, that we really can uh, balance the budget and we can uh, eliminate the national debt and we can fix the entitlement programs. Uh, so they're simple, transparent, and reserved only for the most uh, needy uh, people in society. We obviously want to take care of people, uh, but we've added, you know, several millions of people to the uh, dis disabled uh, list of uh, entitlements when, you know, disabled people, you know, that's really a tragedy. But in most cases, they can still actually uh, be a productive member of society, and that's what they want, by and large. So everything you know, it seems hopeless, it seems endless, but there really are pretty direct ways. Uh, and if we laid out a plan uh, to do all of this, I think you would see uh, the market become very stable. And I think that it would be a, single, a signal uh, to entrepreneurs uh, that this is the best place in the world to be productive, to be innovative, um, and uh, to savers, if we reoriented all of our policies to favor savings rather than just consumption, uh, we would see an influx of savings. We would see uh, a strengthening of the U.S. dollar. So all of this stuff, I know it seems, you know, when you look at Washington, D.C., and you see President Trump and the Democratic uh, opposition, you see the rise of socialism in, in people's minds um, and in our um, Congress and in our U.S. Senate, where we've got some avowed socialists and we've got a lot of other people who are really, um, 
you know, democratic socialist to the core. So, um, you know, all of that's got to change. And uh, if it does, you're going to see wonderful things happening here. So, you know, the possibility of being optimistic is still there. It's just that the ideology of the American public has sort of rotted out over time, over the last, in particular, over the last century. Um, you know, we've sort of adopted this state socialism um, uh, agenda and approach to things that have really undermined uh, the uh, tremendous uh, benefits that the free market economy had bestowed um, on America. And, uh, you know, we, we took a uh, undeve completely undeveloped landmass and became uh, the world's leading economy through the free market. So let's talk about capitalism, compassionate capitalism in, in particular, you know, because that's what the show's about. And it can maybe give people some ideas of things and hope as they watch towards this stuff. Because I've done a number of interviews of late with uh, investors, uh, what, what, what investors are looking at. Are they still angel investors? Are they still investing in small businesses? Are they frozen? Are they optimistic? You know, all of these kind of things, you know, the Opportunity Zone Fund thing now with the destruction of some of these inner cities is probably more important than ever as an incentive to invest in development, invest in businesses. You know, they can, you can buy a business and turn a business around and rebuild and have it grow. You can, you know, bring manufacturing back into the United States in some of these areas and have jobs in these areas where they can not be, they, they have an opportunity to work and, and make a living, uh, a, uh, a living wage, you know, kind of a thing. They can do, they can, they can be productive. We can have a productive society when people, as you know, the compassionate capitalist definition, they invest time, knowledge, resources, and money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market, create jobs, and create wealth for all those involved. And so uh, some of the interviews that I've been doing with people have been about trends that they see and shifts in the marketplace. How will, and, the, and any, anytime you have a major shift, just like with the dot-com bomb, right? You know, you had a shift from these inflated values of companies that was just money was kind of pumping them up because they could. And then in reality, they couldn't sustain and they collapsed. But it was a great opportunity to start a business because there was so much excess inventory of computers, of office space, of equipment. Uh, there were a lot of engineers seeking work, so they were willing to be paid a little bit less as what a, 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 you know, startups could afford to pay them. And um, it was, there was like a, a, a st perfect storm of new opportunity that came out. Then we saw the, the 2009 collapse and we had the Jobs Act that tried to encourage that investment and the startup of businesses and getting access to capital and sharing the risk with investors to grow the economy rather than just borrowing money from banks and having debt as your source of, of, of capital. And so there's, you know, there's trends now that we may have in the way entertainment's done. You know, we've had this huge amount of opportunity that's been done in esports, and all of that is virtual. So why couldn't more of our entertainment whether it's, and, and I did a whole segment, one of my most popular shows is on esports and how 
the NFL and, and all these major leagues are embracing trying to understand and, and a different dynamic. And now they have to reinvent themselves because we may not for a very long time have massive amount, tens of thousands of people attending a live event again, you know? And so all of these things are, are factors. And then we have cannabis. That's a whole new area of opportunity because that's a whole new industry that is in its infancy right now and being, um, uh, it's being handled different ways in different states. But overall, it's like the invention of the automobile that <clears throat> created a whole new industry of, of you know, people to fix it, uh, people to pump gas, people to, you know, all and, and, and changed how people were able to get around and how goods and services moved. And, you know, the whole industry, you think of what has built around the automobile. So, Talk to our listeners about some of these, how, now, how we might have an opportunity for, of a perfect storm to bring us up out of this that's based off of innovation and investment and growth um, along those lines on the capital side, capitalism. Yeah, I, uh, that, I thank you for bringing that up because it, it sort of plays on what I was talking about earlier is that the cure for the crisis is not inflation, but deflation and trying to pump up prices and wages and all that kind of thing and trying to reduce interest rates is the wrong approach. You want to allow prices and wages to fall and interest rates to rise in order to create an environment where entrepreneurs um, can access uh, labor of all types, capital goods of all types, um, everything, you know, everything, that's falling in, in a deflation, you know, obviously stocks and bonds fall a lot. Um, land prices fall a lot. Uh, building real estate leases and, and rents fall a great deal. But consumer goods don't really fall that much. So it provides an opportunity for innovative entrepreneurs to buy up all those uh, resources, uh, lease them and so forth. and uh, and create new consumer goods or just produce existing consumer goods on a bigger scale. And that brings in another aspect of uh, public policy, which is regulation. Uh, regulation is strangling the entrepreneurs and strangling businesses. But, you know, and if we deregulate, which it has been done in recent years, you see new opportunities open. But you also see that uh, some of the biggest plays in this area occur in industries that are not regulated. So the automobile industry at the turn, uh, you know, a hundred and some odd years ago, there was no regulation at all. There were thousands of uh, teeny companies trying to put together cars and sell them for a profit. Um, in uh, the depression, of the early 1980s, when we saw interest rates go above 15%, we saw unemployment go above 10%, um, and companies like Microsoft, which were teeny companies uh, in the 1970s, all of a sudden, with all these resources available and new technologies, they innovated and created the personal computer, and Microsoft began, you know, its march towards becoming a huge company that employed uh, a couple hundred thousand people directly. And of course, its products uh, started, 
you know, moving into companies and into accounting firms and into banks, uh, making everybody else more productive. It wasn't just for games. Uh, this was productivity throughout the entire economy. So that depression of the early 1980s turned Microsoft from a relatively small company uh, eventually into one of the biggest companies in, in the world. And if you fast forward to the uh, 1990s, uh, Google was formed. It was a small company with very few employees, very few products. Um, and when the tech uh, stock bubble burst in 2000, all of a sudden, uh, the Silicon Valley was flooded with uh, computer programmers, electrical engineers. Uh, there was plenty of office space, plenty of warehouse space, uh, plenty of bandwidth. Everything was super abundant you know, in terms of the things that they needed to create Google and to spread it throughout uh, the economy, becoming one of the largest companies in the world. Um, it's almost scary how big and powerful uh, they have become, but they took advantage uh, of that lull, that recession of the early 2000s uh, to innovate. And they were innovating in an area, a brand new area, uh, that had been, you know, where there wasn't any regulation. So we have to think in terms of really uh, deregulation uh, of the American economy because it leads to a large number of jobs created. Um, had a graduate student who calculated this, and I'm not sure how valid it is, but it gives you an idea of the direction um, and the magnitude of what deregulation does. And he estimated that on average, for every regulator uh, that was displaced, in other words, the position was um, fired, basically, if we fired one regulator and all of the accompanying resources, um, you know, the office space and so forth, uh, that would ultimately lead to an increase of $7 million in GDP. Wow. <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of regulators. We've got like 115,000 uh, financial regulators in Washington, D.C. and New York City. So, 115,000? Yes. And of course, you know, it's not like they're all that effective either. They, they let Enron slip through their fingers. They let Bernie Madoff uh, slip through their fingers. I mean, they were right inside of Bernie Madoff's um, operations. But in the case of Enron, the case of Bernie Madoff, it wasn't the regulators that unearthed these uh, criminal practices. It was uh, effective uh, investigative journalists who ultimately opened uh, the door towards uh, solving those problems. Uh, but basically Enron and Bernie Madoff were able to get away with their schemes for decades. Yeah. So now you, I, when I was uh, preparing for this and reached back out to you, I had stumbled on one of your classes that you had taught. It was, I guess, a, a few years back, but about the economics of prohibition. And I, and I, uh, so talk a little bit about that and as it relates to cannabis as a, as a growth area within our economy. Well, I knew since I was a little kid that the, the stories about cannabis or marijuana 
were untrue. I knew that it was improperly um, labeled a class one drug, which means it has no effective uses and it's inherently dangerous like heroin. Of course, even heroin has some uh, medical uses, but I knew that since I was uh, very young. And uh, when I went to graduate school, um, I wrote my dissertation on the economics of prohibition and I published a book under the same title with the University of Utah Press in 1991. And basically um, what the book shows is that every effort on the government to prohibit uh, a drug or a product of, of that nature, every time they increase the risk and they spend more money and they send people away for longer jail sentences, the potency of the drug goes up. And the reason that is, is because if you can make something more potent like cannabis, or if you can make alcohol more potent, um, you can sneak it into the economy, you can sell it, you can transport it, um, and uh, reduce the risk associated with, with all of that. So basically I was able to show that not only is prohibition not effective in carrying out its social purpose, but it actually makes things worse. Um, and I've been, you know, preaching that uh, same theme since I started studying this problem since uh, I would say the second half of the 1980s. I've been giving public lectures, I've been writing popular articles, I've got my book, I've done several policy studies uh, trying to promote this idea that uh, that prohibition makes things worse um, and legalization would make things better and that cannabis has a multitude and if you include hemp even more so of very legitimate uses and so as uh, states disregarded federal authority international authority and legalized um, cannabis what we've seen is not just the existing purposes for cannabis, you know, it's uh, great medicinally uh, for, you know, we've known for a long time for things like cancer, because it helps you eat more, it helps you sleep better, it reduces your anxiety, uh, it does all the things that the medical establishment thinks are the things, you know, you, you should do. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's never killed anybody. It's essentially it's not harmless, but it, it's uh, possibly the least harmful approach to so many medical uh, issues. And hemp uh, can be made into food. Uh, it's a very healthy uh, food product in terms of hemp seed oil or hemp seeds. Um, you can make building material out of it. You can make a fuel out of it. Um, it's really a master ingredient in that it can apply in so many different ways. It's much like petroleum in the sense that, yes, you can make gasoline out of it. Yes, you can make paint out of it. Uh, yes, uh, you can make plastics out of it. There's literally um, almost nothing that we have as consumer products that isn't influenced in some way by petroleum energy or natural gas um, in terms of the types of goods that we consume. And I think cannabis and hemp uh, hold out the same potential in that they can apply across the board um, 
to all sorts of things. Um, and, um, you know, that is, uh, and it's relatively unregulated. Um, and uh, the prices are coming down. Uh, and um, they're genetically engineering and modifying these things. Um, you know, so you've got the whole CBD uh, market, you know, and, you know, the two main components, although there are many components to cannabis, are THC, which is the psychoactive uh, cannabinoid, and then there's CBD, which is not psychoactive, but holds many medical benefits. And prior to prohibition, there was about equal amounts of THC and CBD in cannabis. But as we got into the war on drugs, the growers found ways of genetically engineering cannabis to take out the CBD and to increase the THC. And so you had the social phenomenon of getting high, where you have a mixture of THC and CBD, and you have a sort of a euphoric experience to, in more recent times, the uh, social convention is, do you want to get stoned? <laughs> because the THC level is so high and there's no CBD to offset it. And so you don't have really a euphoric um, experience. You have a sort of a mind numbing uh, experience in terms of that social convention of getting stoned. So as we go back to legalization, um, you know, with modern genetic engineering in mind, there's nothing that we can't do. Uh, with respect um, to modifying this plant, which has been used by human beings for 5,000 years or more, um, into its role as a master ingredient uh, that's going to propel uh, the new economy forward. And I'm very, very optimistic here. Um, and uh, I think that there are great things. I just don't want to see the regulatory yeah. uh, state impact impose itself anymore. In fact, I think they need to uh, step back and allow uh, cannabis-related firms to use the banking system. Yeah. And I think they need to declassify cannabis uh, as a type um, number one drug uh, where, you know, they say that it has no uses um, and it's inherently dangerous. And we now know, we all now know uh, that's not true, and that the government has essentially been lying to us since, um, at the federal level, since the Marijuana Tax Act in, of 1937, um, when Harry Anslinger, who was the former alcohol czar, uh, he became the drug czar, our first drug czar, uh, and he said that if you try cannabis, if you consume it, it'll make you insane. It'll make you violent. It'll make you into a killer and a rapist, and it will kill you. That was 37? Because uh, the Reefer Madness came out. That was like in the 50s or something. Was it back in 37? It was there? in the 30s. It was in the 30s. Oh. Um, when uh, Hollywood would put out a movie, they would always have a B movie that goes along with it. And making a movie about someone smoking marijuana and then going crazy was just the easiest thing in the world to do. So there was a whole list of these uh, reefer madness type movies and it instilled in the American public, yes, this is really dangerous. Um, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, 
in the show, I knew that this was not true since I was a little boy. My father was a pharmacist. Our family had purchased um, a pharmacy dating back into the 19th century. We still had all of the old equipment. And so when I was around 11 or so, my father took some of that stuff that was in the basement and made a little museum display inside of our pharmacy. And it had all sorts of jars and globes and containers. And, um, you know, I'd heard about President Nixon's war on drugs and war, war on marijuana. And so I was kind of afraid of that. And then I noticed uh, I'd learned that marijuana was the actual name was cannabis indica and cannabis sativa uh, as the two main strains. And in this um, museum display, there were two very large glass jars. And one of them had cannabis sativa and one of them had cannabis indica on them. And they were both full with some kind of vegetated <laughs> stuff. And I'd never seen uh, marijuana before, cannabis. Um, so I was really worried that my father was had these <laughs> huge amounts of marijuana that President Nixon was worried about. And uh, so one day I was working at the store on a Saturday and I asked my father, what is all this stuff? He said, well, it's from the original pharmacy and we don't use this kind of stuff anymore. So it's just a display. And so I said, well, what about, what is that? And I pointed to the big jar of cannabis indica. And he said, oh, that's just something we used to use to make liniment for horses. When the, you know, when the horses um, started plowing the fields in the spring, their legs would become incredibly painful. And so farmers would buy this liniment from, my, from the pharmacy to put on their legs uh, to solve that pain. And then later onto horse uh, racehorses. And uh, so I knew from like age 12 or so that, you know, horses, people aren't going to buy something and put it on horses if it doesn't have some positive effect, right? Um, and so I knew that it was, at least in that form, it had a, a positive use and it wasn't killing anybody. Right. And so that's when I learned that, you know, something just wasn't right. Uh, that the government either didn't know what it was doing or was lying. Um, and then shortly after, of course, we had, they took us off the gold standard. Uh, we had price and wage controls. We had uh, Watergate, um, you know, and so I learned uh, from a very young age that something just wasn't right uh, at the top, you know, so to speak. They were sort of making mistakes all over the place and they were hurting people. And uh, so I think that's what started me down this road uh, where I thought that we should be legalizing uh, cannabis because it was destroying people's lives. It was putting people in jail. It was costing, you know, buckets of money. Uh, people were dying. People were getting shot. People were being imprisoned. Um, and I knew that that just wasn't necessary. So yeah. That, that's what started me down that road. Well, I, you know, I, I do a subset of the Compassionate Capitalist podcast. It's called The Cannabis Capitalist, because as I tried to promote this idea of getting more people to invest, depending on where they are and their level of liquidity into entrepreneurs, 
you know, whether it's $1,000 or $10,000 or $100,000, there's a way that you can play in investing in entrepreneurs with the various programs that are available for general solicitation and the JOBS Act. And I was like, but it turned out it was like an idea that a whole lot of people didn't really even know to look for. And so as I started re you know, covering this, I said, well, there's something that this is a whole new opportunity. It's sort of like a, it's like a, uh, a blank slate and, of, and there'll be investors and business people out there that'll want to understand what does it mean with legalization of cannabis in these different markets? And is it something it's safe to invest in? How do I get involved? And so I've, I've covered a lot of the topics, you know, how it became illegal, the, the medical benefits of it, you know, the different types of, of how the different states are approaching it. And long, you know, a long time ago, similar to you, I had said, you know, they would just ever legalize this stuff. They could tax it the way they tax cigarettes. We, would, we wouldn't have a deficit because we have so much money coming in, you know, to, to, and less people would get it and probably minors wouldn't have access to it. You know, it's hard for minors, it's easier for me, minors to get pot than it is to get cigarettes, right? And so, you know, there would be, we would be able to, you know, have those kinds of, you know, societal benefits of it and our government could benefit from it. And it's just been real interesting to see how the different states have approached it. You know, the way Colorado is doing it or Massachusetts is doing, where you see this real boom in their economies. Whereas um, in, you know, in Florida, the way they hand out licenses, it becomes big business from the get-go. And it's, it's very hard for a small business to participate in, in that. Or the regula regulations, as you talk about, and the burden that they have to try to play, to plug themselves into the licensing that the states have set up, it's, it's really, really difficult. So it'll be interesting to see over time, you know, because now we've had some of these states, there's only 12 states, I think, that don't have, um, you know, some form of, um, of medicinal, I think it's only two states that don't have medicinal legalization. And, um, and there's, you know, a number of states that have these booming economies based on it now. So it's like, it's, um, and so it'd be interesting to see because you've got five years for some of them where the, the strength of what's happened to the economy and how they've done that and compared to other states that are still trying to, Georgia for one, doesn't really know how. We just started to have some additional licenses for, um, being able to process it, even though we had it medicinally available here, you couldn't sell it, right? There was no pharmacies, you know, couldn't sell it. And so it was like, what? How do you do that? How do they get it? You know, so, so, the, so it's, a, it's a hodgepodge. And so from a legal standpoint and from an investor standpoint, it's, it's all over the place. Um, I encourage people to go listen to those shows and talk about that. But uh, um, I think, you know, on the medicinal side, that story you just told, there's, a whole lot of uh, one of the reasons why they need to, de to declassify it is that we could do more research on it. We could do research on all of these, uh, the cannabinoids and how they interact with the biochemistry of the body. Because one of the things that's really a challenge with CBD now is that they don't, it's kind of trial and, and error. You don't really know which one is going to solve this particular issue of you, for you and your own biochemistry. And it's not covered under insurance. Sometimes it's really expensive, and so you kind of buy it, and then it maybe did or did not work, you know, because it's just you just needed a different variation of it, right? A different chemical structure of that CBD product to your own biochemical, and 
they're starting to, I think, you know, some of the universities are able to start doing some of the research on it because of hemp being legalized under the recent Farm Act. So it's hemp is legalized everywhere. So they are starting to be able to do some research on that. And other countries like England and Canada are doing a lot of research on actual cannabis um, with THC and what does that, what, how does that interact with the body? And, you know, so it's coming from other places, but, you know, it's going to be very interesting, I think, next four years, depending on what happens in the election, um, where I think it will de be declassified and we'll be able to um, have uh, a, you know, criminal reform. Uh, we'll be able to have uh, a, a new tax base that we don't have right now. We'll be able to have a lot of new products, as you mentioned. I mean, it's fascinating the things that can be done with hemp and um, across the board. And so maybe that really will be the thing that will will pull us out. They talk about like if you if we went to more so, you know going towards a more green economy is going to create tens of thousands, you know millions of jobs, you know and and can be you know put to be put to work in new industries. And so I think that's going to be it's going to be innovation. You know, and then the capitalism of making money in that innovation that is going to pull us up out of this mess that we're in right now in 2020. So, yeah, Karen, I'm I'm very very optimistic about this whole situation, and one of the things uh, we we can remember is that alcohol prohibition was repealed um, in the depth of the Great Depression, and the federal government, the state government, the county government, the city government we're all in a, a situation where they didn't have the resources to carry out its the basic functions. Um, and so repealing prohibition and reinstituting all of the taxes and fees and license fees uh, brought new revenue uh, into all la layers of government and helped stabilize them. So it was partly uh, a realization that alcohol prohibition was a failure, but it was also a, a, the case that they were desperate for revenues. And I think that this, the silver lining on this economic crisis is that government at every level is now going to be desperate for new sources of revenue. So I'm very optimistic that this insane war on cannabis is going to end very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I want to encourage folks to go to Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, and, and learn more about the, the Austrian business cycle theories when it comes to economics. But also there is, I guess it was an article you wrote, it's, it's Mises.org slash wire slash bus dash wasn't dash cause dash virus. So you dig into the economic impact and this, this virus have it being a trigger, but not the cause. And then under slash library, you can get your book, economics-prohibition-zero, get the, the book on this economics of prohibition. And then also uh, in, the, in the show notes, I'll put back there again, the link to the Skyscraper Curse book. And so, you know, people go get those resources and, um, and educate yourself on this. So you can be informed for the opportunities that are ahead of us of how we're gonna pull us out of together. Together we stayed 
safe and, um, and flatten the impact of the virus on um, human life and the toll on the health toll on people that survive it, but will have everlasting physical uh, situations as a result of it. But uh, together we can pull ourselves out of this economy if we look at ways that we can invest in new ways that generate income for people and tax revenue for our governments. And any final thoughts you want to share, Mark? No, it, uh, just to, to mention that uh, the electronic copies of those two books are for free. Yes, great. And I look so, forward to talking to you again soon. Yes, we will. We will talk again soon. And uh, so with that, I always, uh, in my show, you'll listen. If you're listening to it on a podcast, there's a little, uh, some more information about what's available at karenrams.co, my website. And um, with that, I want to say to everybody, onwards and upwards, stay safe. And uh, let's go make some money. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources, and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings. It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors, and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.